1: I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of historical fiction versus nonfiction, telling stories and language impairments. Our first guest is author Lauren Tarshish, and we'll chat about the differences between historical fiction and nonfiction. Then we'll talk with Randy Emmonson, a professional storyteller, about encouraging children to tell their own stories. Finally, we'll discuss language impairments with Martin Fujiki and Bonnie Britton, professors of communication disorders. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a poetry reading and have Andy Ellis share her writer's journey. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. I love to read biographies because I can learn so many interesting things about people. Among the biographies I love to read are those of the presidents of the United States. But recently, I have found some great new books that present presidential biographies in an interesting new way. So today, I'd like to share with you a little presidential poetry. While many may not connect poetry with biography, children's poets in particular are masters of using poetry to convey information. These works of nonfiction poetry offer some great benefits, one of which is the fact that they are very short, so you can get a lot of information packed into one small place. You don't have to read a whole biography to get a sense of who the person is. Another thing I like about this form is that while they do take on a serious note, they also tend to add a little humor. So you get to learn funny things you may not know from another biography format. For example, The President Stuck in the Bathtub, poems about the presidents by Susan Katz and illustrated by Robert Newbecker, features a poem about William Taft, who weighing in at 340 pounds often had problems with his size. This book features different poetry styles that bring to life little-known tidbits about the presidents and their family members. Another great book of presidential poems is Rutherford B. Who Was He? Poems About Our Presidents by Marilyn Singer and illustrated by John Hendricks. Singer does a great job of bringing the presidents to life by packing her poems with information, but she also includes some additional information at the end for those who may want just a little bit more. The humorous illustrations also add to the overall playful tone of this book. If you still don't have your fill of presidential poetry, then you can also check out Presidential Misadventures, Poems That Poke Fun at the Man in Charge, by Bob Raska and illustrated by Dan Burr. Featuring the Clarihue, which is a simple poetic form specifically invented to make fun of famous people, this collection adds in another set of fun poems written in a very specific style that, again with the comic illustration, adds some great insight and humor into the presidential antics. So if you want to have a little fun, but still want to learn a little bit more about our commanders and chiefs, then why not check out a little bit of presidential poetry on this recommendation from us here at Rachel's World. Rachel's World Children can benefit greatly from understanding history, especially when they learn about the past cultural events that have shaped the world they live in today. There are many different ways to learn about history from history classes, nonfiction books like biographies, and even historical fiction. Today, I have on the phone Lauren Tarshish, an author of historical fiction. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Rachel let's discuss a little bit more in depth as we move forward about the juxtaposition of fiction and nonfiction with okay. with all of this so where is that balance for you how how do you how do you stride that line because your books are filled with facts and wonderful information that you've drawn from your research but there's also this fictional element so talk a little bit about right. that balance for us
3: well the fictional elements that's a great you know I think that for me the fictional elements is really it's All of those, any detail that that I put in my book, any fictional detail of a thought a child would have, a wish they would have, um, a piece of clothing, a gift they might purchase – all of that really has to be rooted in the facts that I discover in my research. So it's actually, you know, I'm, only, I'm researching, you know, I, I think even I, I had a pigeon character <laughs> in my, in my, you know, because I learned that you had all these carrier pigeons in World War II, hundreds of thousands of them that were dropped by parachute in some cases, along with paratroopers to send messages. It was the most reliable way to get messages back across the English Channel or to headquarters more because, you know, and even today, they are sometimes more reliable than a cell phone in a in a fraught battle situation so even that you know i was i was developing the little character of ellie the paratrooper that had to really be based on fact you know there were there were paratroopers whose whose pigeons got overly attached to them and refused to leave um what did a pigeon sound like what are the noises that a pigeon would make is it realistic that a pigeon could care follow it so all of those things i mean i can take of course liberties um and this is a children's book and i can push especially my animal characters a little further away than maybe, you know, I think an animal, a, a wildlife, you know, bird expert might have some quibbles. But um, but I do, I, I really, I, I feel very liberated that I can make up my characters because initially when I had the idea, I really did want them to be nonfiction. I mean, that that's my favorite genre to write in narrative nonfiction. The problem is that children in history are not necessarily you're not going to find voluminous diaries like if you were writing about Winston Churchill or, you know, huge letters like between Emily Dickinson and her, (laughs) you know, her friends. So, you know, those kids just didn't do that. So I recognized right away when I was writing the proposal for the series, the limitations of writing about children in history is they don't document their lives. Um, and especially the further back you go, you just don't find enough to create a whole book about one child. Um, and then, of course, if you're writing narrative nonfiction, you have to adhere exactly right to every—you know—everything has to be very much exactly from what you can draw from the evidence. In this case, I'm able to create, of you know, I'm—I have the freedom to create characters um, from my imagination. So it isn't really it, to me. I don't have a hard time like you know on the line what i what i have a hard time with sometimes is if i can't find the factual basis of what would this meal have been, what would the hobby have been, once I wrote about a kid who lo- loved playing marbles. <laughs> you know, you know, If I can't find enough information about it, I'll have to abandon that and try to find something else that I can find the factual basis of. I don't want to be making things up out of, whole, you know, out of nowhere. I want even the fictional elements in the D-Day story. I wanted Paul's experience to be grown from the soil of the facts.
1: That grounding, that soil of the facts. Talk a little bit about your research process and the types of things you do to research all of these great books.
3: You know, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's an, inc- it's an immersive process. It seems a little ridiculous when you see my little books. You know, <laughs> to think, you know, to come to my office and you see these stacks and stacks and stacks of, um, of books. Because for every, for every little detail in the book, even something like, you know, thinking about how you know what kind of tree you know trying try to visualize what kind of tree the paratrooper victor would have been caught in what would what kind of patches would he have had on his uniform i mean something like that even if if uh, i know that i'm gonna have grandparents maybe Great grandparents who were aware, you know, who are military historians reading my book to their grandchildren, I want them to look at the, to hear the description of the boots that Victor wore and go, yes, that's correct. So I have to, every single, you know, I have, I'll read and read and read and visit and interview as the first part of the process to ground myself in the event but then as i'm writing and uncovering new plot details i have to go back into my research or call an expert up and really um, and delve even more deeply i had a whole plot point about this type of weapon that the you know that paul and his he ends up getting caught up in the resistance which you know this little cell that was in the town that his mother would turned out to be involved in and they have to destroy some of this very horrible kind of powerful Super cannon that I had learned when I was in Normandy were these very potent mobile weapons. So I had to read all about those. I had to call a weapons expert and interview him, even though it's a couple of sentences in the book. It has to be accurate. So, um, and then we have fact checkers at the end. You know, we always have the books vetted by a person who's really a leading expert in the field. So it's very important to me that all that that the you know that research. Um, isn't just, you know, to kind of vaguely know, it's it's to ground myself, and then there's that whole other layer of ensuring that every single thing in the book is accurate.
1: Well, I will say one of the things that I find when I read a piece of historical fiction is if it makes me want to go and read more about the event, then I mark it as a good piece of historical fiction. And that always happens with me with your books because I see some of these details in them as I read personally and I know as my students read that they think, oh, wow, I need to know more about that. I need to understand more about that. And that just leads you further in. So that kind of connection, I think, is a wonderful thing that provides your your, your grounded historical fiction in just extending kids' ideas of what of what history is all about because it can be pretty boring in textbooks and that. Is that one of the intents of this series to to really make history more interesting for kids?
3: Definitely. I mean, I what I think that, Rachel, one of the – I mean, I've been working for almost 30 years at Scholastic in the Classroom Magazine Division, which is the founding division of the publisher Scholastic. It's where we all started um, with our current chairman's father, actually, 100 years ago, founded the company with one single magazine that he started for high school students called uh, Scholastic. And his whole his whole mission in founding that magazine was – to help children understand the world and themselves, to become, you know, clear thinkers, to have the facts so that they could participate in our democracy, you know, to be educated, and that still very much is the mission. The ma- which I now over I oversee this division now, and it's almost 30 magazines, and it's pre-K all through high school, but I do think that the mission in that division is the same in I Survived, which is to, uh, to even kids who don't like to read, and today we have so much competition for kids' time, especially as they get older, whether it's sports or video games or too much homework, you know, all of the things that they're involved with, so, but that yet they still need to know things even if they don't love to read, that doesn't mean they don't want to know and that they don't need to know. So I really feel that in some ways I, I just actually put this on Twitter. I was, like, thinking about this, and I kind of a, kind of clarified my personal mission. Yes, I'm an author, but I'm really trying to help kids um, – I want them to to help them know and understand and want to explore further. So that is definitely, you know, um, and I challenge myself. I think it has to be really fascinating. You have to turn it into a story that's going to be from the first page riveting, or else they're just not going to read it. So um, that's, I think, you know, I would, you know, otherwise it's just not even worth the time. I think as a child, you know, for for this audience anyway. Um, they're not coming. Very some of the kids are coming to the series because they're obsessed with World War II. You know that we definitely, I definitely have those kind of readers. I once had a kid write to me, and his his Gmail address was Titanic Specialist at Gmail dot com. <laughs> he was like a nine year old. I loved him. He could we communicated. That's um, perfect. He, he would send me a lot of facts about the Titanic he and his mom, like so. Um, but most of the kids aren't. You know, they're kids in their, like Steph Curry jerseys and stained with chocolate milk, or they're running or and they just they 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 love the stories and the excitement and they love the ki- they want to be, they feel they, they're interested in the boy or the girl and then they're learning kind of as the, It's almost, you know, as sort of the second hand experience and then of course they do hopefully want to learn more so um, it's definitely, you know it's, uh, it's something I'm always thinking about
1: That is a perfect thing because I do think that's what we need to engage our kids with is learning and growing and not only just learning and growing about their world around them and their history, but also about how to be good contributors to that world and learning through these characters' eyes and through their strength and courage, I think, is one of those amazing things. So the newest... Uh, The newest edition in the I Survive series is a wonderful book about D-Day, and really timely, particularly for the anniversaries and all of those things coming. But what is coming in the future? What What are some of those things we can look forward to with the series coming up?
3: Wow. The, the next one that's coming out in September is a very strange and unusual disaster Ooh. that many have not heard of. Rachel, we'll see if you have. I've written about it before in, in the magazines, it's Scholastic, and, and a lot of those readers wrote to me and said, you have to make this a nice Survive book. So it's the Great Boston Molasses Flood. Um, I actually have 100. heard
1: about that. You've heard <laughs> I of it. I have, yes. 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 So
3: a hundred years ago, this gigantic building-sized tank in Boston exploded apart and flooded the North End in this raging river of of thick, sticky molasses and killed 21 people and injured 150, and really also changed our history, which was what intrigued me so much, because it was really because of that disaster that building codes were enacted. And also, it was the first successful class action suit against a company where the victims, mostly very powerless Italian immigrants, did get, you know, they were compensated for their losses, and that had never happened before. So it had this really interesting tangents that, you know, were kind of really very, very intriguing.
1: Well, we'll look forward to that coming out in September and more to come, I hope, from your pen or computer uh, or wherever it comes out. I, I am very excited for all of your readers to, to see some great new history in, and how it's portrayed through this wonderful series.
3: Thank you so much, Rachel. What a, what a delight to talk to you. Lauren Tarshish
1: is the author of the I Survived series. Now, we have story time with a reading of two poems, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud by William Wordsworth and Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow.
0: I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud by William Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in a pensive mood, They flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils.
2: Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow As a fond mother, when the day is o'er, leads by the hand her little child to bed, half willing, half reluctant to be led, and leave his broken playthings on the floor, still gazing at them through the open door, nor wholly reassured and comforted by promises of others in their stead, which, though more splendid, may not please him more. So nature deals with us and takes away our playthings one by one and by the hand leads us to rest so gently that we go scarce knowing if we wish to go or stay, being too full of sleep to understand how far the unknown transcends the what we
3: know.
1: Stories are a very important part of the development of a child. Children usually begin telling stories on their own, although they might not realize it. Our job is to help them engage with their own stories and embrace them. Today I'm in the studio with storyteller and educator Randy Evanson. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Randy, you are a storyteller, and one of the things you do as a storyteller is you work with kids and you tell stories to kids and you help kids engage with their own stories. So to start off today, maybe tell us a little bit about your experience with storytelling and children. What what are some of the things you've done to help engage children with stories?
4: Well, first of all, I have found that um, children love, love stories. They love, love, love them. When you have three loves for something, <laughs> it's it, pretty big love. It, yeah. it, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah. Uh, but children will also say, "I don't, I don't have any stories." And in in an educational setting, you want them to have stories because stories are a place where they can begin to write. Story uh, writing is a big part of the curriculum. So I always would uh, tell them a story first. You want to give them an example. You want to give a generic story uh, about an emotion that they can relate to. Something where a story about a time I have been afraid, a story where I have dealt with an animal, a story where I have been in trouble, a story that I was very excited about. So I can turn around and say, have you had a time where you were excited have you had a time where you uh, were afraid have do you have an animal so that because whenever you're telling a story those kids are creating a picture and they're creating an experience that where it's happened to them as well a lot of teachers will say i can't pull i can't pull writing out of kids very well But if you give them a pre-write that is just a story, I I don't want to give them a sentence and say, write about this. But if I give them – if I tell them a story, all the entire time I'm telling them a story, they just have things just flowing through their mind about things they want to tell me. And I'll just say, no, no, not not yet. We're not telling yet. We're not telling. They just – they have to sit on their hands because they are so so excited <laughs> yes. to tell you everything about, about when about their animal, about yeah. their pet that they're, but, and then when i 'm all done, the first thing that i 'll have them do is turn to a neighbor and share because they're so, so excited about sharing their own story. And then I would take a few minutes about them with them sharing their stories with each other. And you can feel the excitement in the room with just as they share a story with each other. And I very, very seldom have anyone who is mindless and, and can't think of anything. And then you, it's like run as fast as we can back to our desks to write these stories. But – all it takes is telling them a story first, and, and their mind is just filled with, I remember when something like that happened to me. Uh, but all it takes is telling them a story about an emotion, and then they can relate to that as well.
1: That really could be used in any context. Yes. Like you can use it in schools. You could use it at home with your children. You, you start with a story and then you have. Them oh, my tell goodness. A story. Go yeah. to church with yes. an adult. Yes. And
4: everyone yeah. raises yes. their hand yeah. because yeah. they have to share it's something a story. too. It's a story, yes. 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 It,
1: it's really interesting to me the way you say that because. In thinking about, as you're describing it, I was thinking about, you know, I think particularly with children, they're very natural storytellers. Mm-hmm. And they have this very natural gift for storytelling. Because but,
4: language yes. is our first language. Talking yes.
1: is our first language. Yes.
4: Reading and writing is a second language.
1: Such a wonderful way to look at it. That yes. oral language is so foundational yes. to who we are and what we do and how we communicate with the world. Yes. And I think, unfortunately, we think about the way schools are structured, or you know, the way adults interact with children. Often, we can we can kind of negate that natural tendency, right? When when we you know have kids in rows and want them to be quiet in school, or we as adults, you know, you know there's a kid pulling on our coattails and say, hey, I got this, I've got this, I've got this, and we're like, shush, shush, you know. And we want to say,
4: sit down, be quiet, work on your language. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's just like, "Be, yeah, don't, be quiet, quiet, but here's the thing that's going to help you. And so it's a a really interesting dichotomy to there where we have this natural enthusiasm, but yet we do things as adults that kind of prevent kids from expressing that natural enthusiasm. And we
4: forget that language needs to be talking. Yeah. In in a classroom, talking can be very good. We need to learn how to control it, but talking is is essential in langu- in, in a classroom.
1: Yeah, that opened up my eyes today for just some fundamental things that I've I've known, but just the way you're describing it just makes it real to me because it is about talking. It is about describing who we are. And then what is, besides building our oral language and building that competence in that oral language, what other things do you think storytelling can provide for our kids? What other types of um engagement do we get from having them tell their stories
4: oh it it helps us it it, it helps so much in in language arts it helps them to learn uh sequencing it helps them to build vocabulary it It helps them to uh, to learn how to put things together. It, it is it is a, a real fundamental um whole whole language everything yeah. it is it helps us to build on on everything that we want language to be it's the foundation of everything that language it helps us to to um uh, when we talk about um any kind of language skills it begins with with good oral language
1: yeah that and that is something, too, that not some kids don't have that. I mean, right. we think we think with certain groups of children who may not have had that kind of interaction or may not have had that opportunity to build those oral language skills, particularly for them, it's so much more important that they have these foundational things that build the vocabulary and other right. kinds of skills.
4: You know, instead of learning about verb tense on, on a worksheet, we want to hear verb tense. We want to hear it used correctly uh, modeled by a teacher and then practiced among yeah. e- each other in a, in a story that that's the real way to use it
1: well and what a wonderful natural way to use it too because exactly. you know like if we're if we're telling a story in the present then we've got present verb tenses exactly. if we're telling a story in the past we've got Past verb tenses, So we're telling the story in the future, we've got future verb tenses, Ex- right? How amazing <laughs> the, to just put it there, you know, it's exactly. all there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
4: And we can see it doesn't feel right when we yeah. hear everyone else using yeah. it correctly. Yeah.
1: I That really is such a very specific way to to look at it and just shows how powerful this very specific form or this form that's just kind of something we don't naturally think about in that depth and, and, is so important to what I'm we do and I'm telling you, you every know?
4: student will be engaged and interested you won't have anyone you know knocking his head against the wall because he can't do it yeah. he will he will he will be passionate and they will love it.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's a wonderful kind of thought to to end on is it's not just building skills. It's not just vocabulary development and all these really hard concrete skills. It's also about motivation. Yes. It's also about engagement. And those, it, it seems, are just as important as some of those other things. In
4: fact, they're even more critical because yeah. that will keep them learning. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Randy. This has been a wonderful insight into how we can use stories to help motivate, engage, and help our kids learn. Thank you so much. Thank you. Randy Evanson is an educator and storyteller. Now, we have the chance to hear from author Andy Ellis as she shares her personal
5: journey to becoming a writer. I would have to say this all started with my mom. My mom read to me from the time I was a baby. She's, she's always, she would always read to us. We, she'd come read in our rooms or we'd go lay in her waterbed and she would read to us. She was a elementary school teacher and a children's librarian herself. And she just really valued books. And so from the time I was little, I've always loved reading and it's been a big part of my life. As a kid in elementary school, I loved to write stories and I would write all the time. And we would had a young authors contest where if you wrote a story and won, you got to take the day off. I remember one year, take the day off and meet an author. And one year I got to meet Dean Hughes and that was a really big deal. And there was one moment in fifth grade actually where I wrote a story and I ended up not winning and the comments on my paper were kind of negative about my story. And from that point on, I decided that maybe I couldn't be a writer. So from about fifth grade through up until college, I didn't actually write very much because of that experience, but I did read. I mean, I lived in books. It was, it was what got me through so many hard times. It, it made my summers. It was my favorite thing to do. And then I didn't actually pick up writing, um, creative nonfiction and fiction until I was in graduate school, actually. Um, so I started from a very young age and definitely from a love of reading, and then I have always liked writing, but like I said, I did take a long break. I was in graduate school, and I was studying um, composition rhetoric, and I saw a flyer for a personal essay contest where you could win money. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, I'm going to try to write a personal essay, and I'd never written one, and... I was living with my best friend at the time and I was talking to her. I'm like, what should I write about? And she said, write about me. And we were kind of laughing, but I I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this best friend that I've had for years. And it was really fun. I just wrote about, I wrote about our relationship and I wrote about when her parents went through a divorce and how we, how we interacted. I wrote about us at dances at the high school and just, just being a good friend to each other. And the essay ended up I didn't win, but I got honorable mention. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was the most fun I've ever had. I love English. I love writing papers on different novels and things. But this was just having a fun time writing about something that I really cared about. And so from then on, I thought, you know, I really want to try this. And I ended up taking a class from Dean Hughes, who was kind of, you know, a big deal to me. Um, And I also took a a class from Louise Plummer in creative writing. They're my first creative writing classes, and I just fell in love with it. And I just decided, oh my gosh, if I can make a living doing something that I love, why wouldn't I go for that?
1: Growing up and learning how to socialize with the world can be hard for any child. But it's especially hard if a child has a language impairment. Many parents do not know how to spot it or where to go to get help if their child needs it. That's why I have Martin Fujiki and Bonnie Britton in the studio today. They are both speech pathologists and professors of communication disorders. Welcome, Martin and Bonnie. We're glad to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you today because with your experience and expertise, particularly in language impairments and interventions for children, I think this is going to be a really interesting thing for our audience to kind of understand the scope of what this is and maybe how to look at it if they know children in their lives that that are facing these kinds of challenges. So, first off, Bonnie, why don't you define for us what what are we talking about when we're talking about language impairments? What, What is it that we're thinking about?
2: Language impairment is a fairly common disorder. To affects about 7% of kindergartners, so that's a tremendous amount of children. And what we see in kids with language impairment is they have difficulty acquiring language in, uh, like typical kids do. It may be slower. It is more difficult. Um, they have problems with uh, um, the structural aspects of language, learning the words, putting sentences together, learning uh, the grammatical parts of language. Um, they also tend to have difficulty choreographing conversations and being responsive uh, in conversation. And there's also a huge social and emotional learning piece uh, in that as well. So it's a disability that affects all modalities of language, speaking, listening, reading, writing, signing of the child signs. That
1: is a, a really kind of broad scope. So Martin, could you maybe explain to us a little bit about what would it be like for a child to live with these kind of things? And particularly, how does it affect those social and emotional skills?
6: Well, it's important to realize that different children react differently and have different kinds of problems. Um, In one child, you might find um, a largely expressive deficit. So they seem to understand a lot of what is said, but they have a lot of trouble expressing themselves, a lot of trouble making um, well-formed sentences. And and that can be a handicap, but the, the even bigger handicap is when the child doesn't understand what is said. And then that can make life pretty difficult because um, not understanding language impacts all kinds of interactions. It impacts learning in the classroom, impacts social interactions. Um, you know, people, when you don't understand um people treat you like you're not very smart or you're not paying attention. Uh, In terms of social and emotional learning, it certainly impacts relationships. And um, there are some aspects of language impairment that are not really visible, uh, such as not being able to read the emotions uh, of other people or not being able to take the perspective of other people. And, And when you can't do that, Again, those kinds of problems certainly impact your social relationships.
1: That is an important thing, I think, for us to remember, because if there is such a large number of children out there and they are facing these kinds of things, that it affects all aspects of their life. So Bonnie, particularly for a, a parent or someone who an adult who's caring for a child, what would they might look for to see? particularly in a young child, if this might be of a concern that that a language impairment is something that they need to be watching out for and maybe work to get some professional help for?
2: Well, when we think about toddlers... um Children, most children get their first words right around 12 months. And uh, it's that period where you get those words and then there are a few words and by the time they are 18 months old, uh, they usually have about 50 words and they're combining those into little sentences. And then language development kind of goes like a wildfire. Kids with language impairment Many of them, that's a, that's a much slower process. Sometimes those words are late in coming, or sometimes a few words will come right around 12 months, but then at 18 months, you still see the same few words, and that's not a typical pattern. So it tends to be slower. It tends to be harder, more difficult time putting those little sentences together, making them sound um, grammatical uh more difficulty expressing themselves like martin said if they have receptive difficulties you'll see difficulty following verbal directions not because they're not compliant they don't not because they don't want to follow them because they don't understand uh, the words and the structures
1: and that can be a real challenge for parents so martin what do you think would be the first step for a parent or adult if they start seeing these kinds of atypical patterns in their children what what should they do
6: well um A good way of approaching this, I think, would be to um, talk to your preschool teacher, talk to your elementary school teacher as a starting point. Um, That would be one way of getting the opinion of someone who's around a lot of children and has a lot of comparisons. Um, If it's decided that the child needs some kind of assessment, then um, if you're in a school system. Uh, then you would have speech-language pathology services available. Um, if not, you might need to go to a private clinic. But uh, a speech pathologist could give you a pretty good assessment in terms of whether or not more needs to be done. Uh, and, you know, as a parent looking at a child, uh, if the child seems to be stuck... And just kind of in the same place, that's probably one of the biggest clues that you might have that there would be a problem. Starting a little later to speak than other kids wouldn't be nearly as serious as seeming to start and then just be stuck there.
1: I I like that sense of being – being stuck i think that's a great way for parents to look at it cuz sometimes it's really difficult as parents or adults to really understand is this typical or is it not typical mm-hmm. or how does how does that work so it that can be really confusing particularly for parents so how can how can adults better be attuned to to what their needs of their child are? Are there suggestions that you have to help them feel feel more confident, particularly if this is gonna be something that's really, really serious and, and require a lot of intervention and help for, for the child to to
2: have some success? Well, I'd say the first thing you want to do is watch your child very carefully. Don't feel that you have to jump in there and over talk them. Watch what they're doing and um, wait, see what's interesting to them and then try to engage their attention, try to make an emotional connection, and then say something that is simple enough that you think they can understand it and has to do with something they are interested in. Um, Frequently, we want to talk about a lot of things that, uh, kids don't find quite as interesting and you see this for example you go to the zoo and you watch parents with their children i was watching in a, um, a gorilla enclosure once and there was a little toddler there with the parents and the parents are going look look at the big gorilla look at the big gorilla and the um, little child was focused on a smaller gorilla much closer that was uh, had its arms uh, uh, clenched around itself and was kind of shaking and the child was going cold 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 and the child thought the gorilla was shivering, and the parent was going, no, you got to look at the silverback. Look over there. Look at that one. Rather than focus and go, oh, yeah, gorilla's cold. She's very cold. She needs a sweater.
1: I like that. That's wonderful. I, I really think that um, this idea of intervention and working with a speech-language pathologist is really important. So what tips do you have for parents to – make that kind of professional relationship with a speech-language pathologist and and to find out how to work really well with those types of professionals that can,
2: that can help them along this path. You know, speech-language pathologists love to work with involved parents. We are anxious to work with parents. The younger the child, the more we try to hand over the intervention to the parent uh, because Any way you look at it, the parent is with the child all the time. The parent knows the child's needs. The parent's going to know what works best. What we try to do is enable and empower parents to interact most effectively with their kids to make the best connection and to put themselves in the best teaching place. That's wonderful. Martin?
6: Yeah, and it's important for parents to know that the standard model for early intervention, so working with a child, you know, six months, a year, 18 months is to train the parents to do most of the interaction, most of the therapy, because the parent is going to be there all the time. And it's like having a therapist there all the time. And early intervention is great in terms of the gains that we see.
1: So you see lots of success with early interventions? Oh, but?
6: yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: And what, what would we talk – how early is early
2: what, when would this start? Well, yeah, I've had parents say, well, you can't do anything for my child because they're not talking yet. But a lot of communication and a lot of language foundation happens long before those first words. So as soon as a parent is concerned about the connection they're making with their child, if it doesn't feel right, if they feel like the child is distant, um, they should ask for some help and support.
1: So this is way before even you would start school sometimes.
2: Oh, yes, long before.
6: Yeah. So if you have a child who's just not very interactive, who just seems to lay there and not respond at all, then that would be the first clue that you might want to pay attention and and kind of watch development. Um, It might be that, you know, the child would grow out of that, but that's oftentimes the first thing that we would focus on.
1: Well, and that's a good place to start. Thank you so much, Bonnie and Martin, for coming and speaking about this complex topic with us today. And I hope that this has given a little information to our parents out there who might have concerns or need a greater understanding and that they can seek out the, the professionals like you who can help engage with their children in this way. We're so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Martin Fujiki and Bonnie Britton are both professors of communication disorders here at BYU. Now, join me around the librarians' table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Elizabeth Smart and Emily Dorowski, academic librarians here at BYU. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. I am so excited to talk about something that's pretty unique to us as academics and us as librarians, and that is something we term scholarly communication. So essentially, we communicate as scholars a lot of different things in a lot of different formats. And some of those are not kind of your your normal formats or your normal ways to communicate. And it's important to understand how we do that as scholars. So first off, talk a little bit about your individual approach as a scholar, so what do you communicate, and how do you communicate it what What does that look like for you?
7: So I communicate the research that I conduct primarily through journal articles um, and but one thing that I've been able to do at the library, which I would have never imagined I'd do in my lifetime, was I've put together an exhibit with collaborators. Which is conveying information in um, a very visual way and, um, you know, it's not readership, it's kind of visitorship, I guess you (laughs) could say. Visitorship, I like that. (laughs) But Elizabeth and I actually also this year um, wrote a paper which was published, but we also went to a conference where other people in our profession come and we presented kind of the main points of our paper. So it's another way of communicating
8: Excellent. Yeah, just I, just in addition to what Emily is saying, sometimes at those professional conferences, another way that people convey or share their research is through a poster session. So you will um, summarize your your research and your findings and some potentially some future questions on a on a poster, maybe a three foot by four foot poster and then conference attendees come around and you have a chance to visit with people one-on-one and they can ask you questions about your methodology or about your um, some of your conclusions and so there's lots of ways within the academic sphere that the scholarly communication happens either through publication or um, through conferences and, and and those are all ways to kind of connect with people in your field
7: and- Oh, I was just going to add that um, my background is in psychology, and um, we mostly communicate through journals, but there are some disciplines, more like the humanities, who communicate through full-length books or essay collections. My husband's been involved with some of those.
1: That's one of the things I love about this, is just the kind of scope of the way we communicate. And I don't think a lot of people really realize that kind of scope. But what are the challenges? What are some of the pitfalls <laughs> of the ways we communicate? What are what are some of the and particularly today? What are what are those kinds of things that you guys perceive that scholarly communication pathways are facing that are that are really challenging?
7: Um, well, as I said earlier, I mostly communicate through journal articles, but most journals are behind a paywall, meaning. Um, and it's usually the institution or the library that's paying for a subscription to these journals. And that's how academics get access to them and students get access to them through their university. And for me, that's problematic because it means a lot of information that's being produced um, that's evidence-based is not getting out to the general public. Yeah, and that's
1: challenging because important findings, important things that could change our world are not being Openly available, right. yeah.
7: And, and in a part, I mean, there's often this disconnect between the academic and the practitioner in the same field. Yeah. Do you see that same thing?
8: Well, yes, I do. And then I guess another area that um, uh, where scholars are sharing information, or I guess I'm thinking of graduate students, either through a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation um, uh separate from the, the paywall or, or journal system of accessing information, I think one positive thing that's been happening in the last 10 to 15 years is making uh, l- big collections of master's theses and doctoral dissertations open to the public. And usually that happens at the university level. Each university will have um, an institutional database where they just – share all of that graduate work free of charge and it's it's usually um just available even through a google or a google scholar search that you can find that information this is um of course a, a dissertation and a thesis often those works will go on to be published perhaps by a, a university press but in its um in its initial form it can be available online. It um, goes through sort of a different peer review process than than other publications um, but but at least it's the basis of some information that's available.
1: You mentioned peer review which is interesting because there are lots of vetting processes that the scholarly communication goes through right so when a scholar produces information it's not like they produce it and it just immediately goes out there and gets out there Lots of things have to happen to make that get out into the public. Why do you think those kinds of processes are important to how we communicate, which might be different than like if you were publishing in a newspaper where just an editor would look at it or if you were, you know, publishing a blog and nobody looks at it or something like that. So why, why is that important?
7: Well, I think, you know, it's a kind of check and balance. I don't know if the system is perfect, but if if I do research and I write up a journal article Then it goes out to a kind of a jury of my peers. Usually they're blind to who has written a particular paper, meaning they don't know it was me. And that's supposed to help eliminate um, bias, hopefully. Um, And then they read through it and they make comments about, you know, how I set up my argument, research methods, findings and whatnot, and they send back those reviews, often (laughs) scathing. Yes, we've all had those scathing reviews. (laughs) And then they make a judgment call whether or not that piece will be included in their journal, which is, that's very rare. Most times it's, you need to revise, you can resubmit, and then maybe we'll publish it. And then oftentimes it's a simple rejection, and they're saying you have to try a different publication venue.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's important to understand all of that pieces that go into this. But why, what are some other reasons you think that it's important for people to understand this? I, I think we talked a little bit about the fact that this goes out into the public and may be involved in practitioner work or these kinds of things. So I think that's one reason to understand it. But what are some other reasons you might think that, you know, as a general public, understanding how scholars communicate might be useful
8: I think in terms of um, evaluating, uh, evaluating the authority of, of a particular um, piece of information, I think there's – so I think um, this peer review process – helps. Um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically in the medical or nursing field, This the importance of evidence-based practice. And part of that evidence-based practice is supported by the peer review process. And then you mentioned other forms of communication that we have, blogging, that would just be sort of a personal opinion or an essay. Now in the news, um, you know, journalists are trained to triple check their sources. And so when reporters are, are writing about an issue, they're not just... Um, they're not just writing from their gut they're they're fact checking many times and then they have fact checking fact checkers that help them also so I think understanding how different types of information are created and disseminated can help you as an individual decide how much stock you're going to place into it
1: yeah yeah I, I think that that's a huge thing right because in this day and age particularly with the internet so much of information looks the same right it's hard to tell if it's a news source or a journal article or a blog sometimes and so having that kind of understanding is really huge and then for me one of the you know one of the important things is not only for concerned adults but also for you know college students or kids that are going into college to understand that this is because they're going into a college situation this is the kind of communication that that is standard for that environment and so that's why they're writing these research papers that's why they're doing this work so it's not it's not just because we feel like it's fun to do there's there's reasons behind why you would write or produce that kind of information in that kind of setting yeah yeah,
7: yeah. I think one thing I want to bring in about scholar scholarly communication is that sometimes we use the term scholarly conversation and what that means is that um, if I read an article from from one person, that's one piece of an entire conversation on you know the particular subject that they were addressing, and as a person, or as I talk to students, or um, I I want them to know that. They can't take this as the end-all, be-all, that this is the answer to all things. It's not. It's one small piece of answering probably a pretty small question that is part of a much bigger question, and you have to read a lot to really get a sense of what the conversation is going on within that particular topic. And that's a career-level kind of
1: thing, right? Each of us do that, right? We have a scholarly communication agenda, and we spend our careers— kind of grappling with all of that it's it's pretty complex this stuff that we do well thank you ladies for breaking down the complexity of scholarly communication with us today i'd like to thank elizabeth and emily for joining me around the librarian's table we've had a great show today first we talked with lauren tarshish about her work with historical fiction and nonfiction. Then, we chatted with storyteller Randy Evanson about how to encourage children to tell their own stories. Lastly, we discussed language impairments with Martin Fujiki and Bonnie Britton, professors of communication disorders. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram, at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.